All right. Well, uh, great to be with you again, uh, church family. And for those of you who are new with us, welcome. Uh, we're certainly glad that you're, you're here today. And today we are continuing our journey through the gospel of John. If you couldn't uh, get that from the big purple banner behind me. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, uh, why don't you turn there with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Uh, last week we began chapter 12 together. And it was there that we considered Mary's heartfelt love and gratitude for Jesus. Um, if you weren't here for that, it's this amazing scene where Jesus finds himself uh, at this dinner with some close friends and followers. And at, uh, and at that dinner, as the group is sort of having the meal and they're, they're reclining at the table, we learn that Mary, one of Jesus's closest followers, gets down, cracks open a bottle of perfume, and anoints the head of Jesus to the feet of Jesus. And then she does something shocking. She wipes Jesus's feet with her hair, signifying that Jesus is a worthy king, that Jesus is worth devoting the entirety of our lives to. And so we explored that and we talked about our theme for this year, which is devoted. Well, things transition quickly in John chapter 12. And right after that dinner, uh, we are told that it's the next day. And it's here that we're going to see Jesus move now from being anointed as king to being coronated as king. And you know what's interesting? Uh, if you think about coronations, coronations meaning crowning, a crowning of a king. If you think about that historically, um, it's always quite the scene, if you've ever witnessed any of these. Um, I think of Napoleon, for example. Of course, I wasn't there for that, but could read about it. Uh, crowned king of France in 1804. Um, the location, Notre Dame. Go Notre Dame. <laughs> uh, his, this, the college, university, football, yeah, never mind. Uh, the location, not related. The location, Notre Dame. Um, his dress that day, we we're told, um, a white velvet vest with pure gold embroidery. The buttons, every single one of them, made of an individual diamond. Um, the crown that he wore on his head that day, solid gold, inlaid with precious jewels. We are told that the Pope was there for this. Two orchestras four choruses, a 400-member choir, over 300 musicians gathered together to play that day, and thousands upon thousands, uncountable, they say, lights were set ablaze for the coronation of Napoleon becoming king and his wife becoming queen. It was a reverent ceremony, uh, glorious. You might say fit for a king. But what we're going to see in John 12 is that Jesus is a different kind of king. Um, he is not the king that everyone expected. He's not the king that everybody wanted, but he was the king that everybody needed. And he is the king that you and I need. You see, Jesus's entry, uh, his coronation is quite different than that of Napoleon and others like Napoleon, because he's not ascending to some golden throne. No, we're going to see today that he's actually ascending to a Roman cross. His glory is different. His kingdom is different. His way of winning followers is different. Now, if you've been with us at all through John's gospel, as we've been studying it you know, over the last year together, you've heard this repeated phrase throughout John's writing, which is, my hour has not yet come, or Jesus' hour has not yet come, or the time is not yet come, Jesus will say. Jesus will say, it's not the time, right? We see that from the very beginning of John's gospel all the way back in chapter two. It's not the time. It's not the time. It's not the time. But now today, we're going to see it's the time. His hour has come. And every clock in the universe, as it were, has been waiting up until this point for this hour. Jesus, we know, is now just days away from being crucified. It's time to go into Jerusalem for that. 
And so today we're going to get a really marvelous look at our king. We're going to consider, first of all, his arrival. Then we're going to consider his announcement, the announcement of the king. And then we're going to finish uh, with the king's appeal, his appeal to the crowd, his appeal to us. Okay, so simple today, broken down into three sections. So let's start with his arrival, his arrival, the king's arrival, which we see in verses 12 through 22. Going back to that beginning of that text again, it says this, the next day, uh, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So again, we're the day after the dinner at Simon's house now, where Mary has anointed Jesus with the expensive perfume. And now uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Why? Because the Passover festival has come. The, the week-long celebration is about to begin, and everyone is supposed to be there for this. And so Jesus, with his disciples and followers, is on, are on their way as well. And we are told here that a, a great crowd goes out to see him. And I'll be transparent with you, we really don't know what that means, okay? Some scholars estimate this is somewhere around 200,000 people. Others say it was much more. But what we are certain of from historical record is that around this time, roughly 2.5 million people were in Jerusalem for the Passover, okay? Um, they know that by how many lambs were slaughtered. They literally kept count of every single lamb that was slain. And then they multiply that number by 10 because one lamb typically represented 10 people between a household and friends uh, that was slaughtered. And then they count that up. So you can do the math. That's how they come up with that number, okay? 2.5 million people in Jerusalem for Passover at this time. A large number of them go out to see Jesus, right? You can imagine the city is buzzing. There's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm over Jesus, but there's a whole lot of contention around him as well. There are always people who love him and always people who hate him, right? And so as Jesus arrives, we see a few different reactions to him. Uh, four, in fact, and I'll run through those really quickly with you, four reactions to his arrival. The first we see is one of political enthusiasm, because look at what happens, political enthusiasm. As he was coming, it says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now, this has become a, a pretty famous scene uh, and a pretty common story uh, within the church. Right? This is the Palm Sunday story. And so we're celebrating Palm Sunday early this year. Um, but because it's common and a well-known scene, sometimes it actually gets lost on us what these palm branches even were and, and what they actually signified. And so the best way to think about them is that they were actually like, they were sort of like national flags actually for Israel. Uh, you see, when Judas Maccabeus restored the temple uh, a, little, a little less than 200 years before this. Um, he restores the temple and the Israelites were told, come out and they're waving palm branches uh, as a sign of nationalism. It was a sign of independence. It signified their freedom, right? And so as the crowd comes and with the crowd comes the palm branches, what they're actually saying is, we want a political liberator. They have Judas Maccabeus in their mind. Maccabeus, they're thinking, saved us from the Syrians, and now Jesus is here to save us from Rome. Overthrow Rome as they're waving the palm branches. We're going to be free. Free us, Jesus. This is their hope. They're looking for that kind of king. And with the branches waving in their hands, we are then told that they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Hosanna. It's a cry of praise. It literally means help us or save us. Um, it's an echo of Psalm 118, directly to, for, taken from there. Hosanna, save us now you read there. You know, what's interesting here is that I'm always just fascinated by the reactions and what they get right and what the people get wrong. I can relate to that a lot um, because it's so interesting here that they actually have, you notice, they actually have the right title for Jesus, 
He is like Hosanna, right? He is the one who's going to come and save. He is the king, right? But they clearly have the wrong expectation. And that's really key to understand. An easy way to think about this is that essentially they wanted Jesus to be their president. Okay? That's an easy way to think of it in our modern day context. Jesus has their vote, if you will. You know, everyone's got those signs that they put out in their yards, right? They're voting for Jesus, right? He's fed them, right? He's healed them. So he's got a good social plan. He's got, you know, a good healthcare plan. He'll just heal you, right? It's good. good make a good president. And so now they're with Jesus and they're like, we want you to lead us politically. I had a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, before I criticize them too much or we even criticize them too much, isn't this indicative of much of human history? I mean, even today, honestly, what gets people more excited? Jesus or political news? Right? What's the trending news story today? What's going to be all over your, 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 the news, news feed, social media, a solid expositional sermon of John's gospel, or political back and forth? Which is more likely? Right? We know the answer, right? Political enthusiasm always wins the day. Right? People are always hoping... Even followers of Jesus, always hoping for a new leader to come to solve their issues. It's, it's interesting. I'll say it that way. And that's much of the crowd here with Jesus. They, they wanted liberty from the Romans, but their problem was not Rome. Much like ours isn't the politics around us. That is not our problem. It's not our greatest need. Jesus has told us what our biggest problem is. It's not believing in him and dying in our sins. That's our greatest problem. That's the biggest need that needs to be solved. And so here is Jesus now. He's coming into Jerusalem to solve that issue. Or you might say he's come to solve the issue. Because he's a greater king. And his kingdom is a greater kingdom. It's greater than Rome or any other kingdom that these people would have had in their mind. So the first reaction to Jesus was political enthusiasm. The second reaction we see is from the disciples. And it's what we've seen all throughout John, and that's misunderstanding. Um, the disciples are a representation here of misunderstanding. Typical. It says in verse 14, Jesus found a donkey... And he sat on it. And I'll pause there. Jesus selects a donkey as his ride into Jerusalem. And what's up with the donkey, right? Like if you're a king, that's a bit of a strange selection. But by getting on a donkey, Jesus is doing a couple different things. For one, we know that he gets on a donkey, sits on that donkey to fulfill scripture. And John shows us that. And what he writes, he says next, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, and then listen, seated on a donkey's colt. Comes from Zechariah 9, 9. And so this is meant to be a pointer. Jesus sitting down on the donkey, an obvious pointer that Jesus is the one that was promised to come. The people could have recognized him. There he is. We've been told this is what the king would do. They should have recognized him. These people who have the scriptures literally memorized, but they miss him. They are blinded by their own desires and blinded by who they think they want and who they think they need. And so Jesus, first of all, is fulfilling scripture here, but he's also sending a message to everyone. And the message is a good one. It's this, calm down. Everyone calm down. It's essentially what he's saying. I'm not coming on a war horse. That's later. I'm sitting here on a donkey. In other words, the message was clear. I'm not here to take over Rome. There will be no physical battle today. I'm coming into Jerusalem for what purpose? To bring peace. To bring peace. 
That was the symbol by, of the donkey, by the way, to bring peace. And how do I know that? Well, let me explain. Back to Zechariah 9. If you read the entire text, Zechariah 9, which, by the way, you should do. I'll give you a Bible tip here. Whenever you're reading the New Testament and something is quoted in the Old Testament, stop. Go back to that Old Testament passage and don't just read that Old Testament passage. Read the chapter. Read what comes before it. Read what comes after it because context matters and context is very helpful. It's helpful here, okay? Always helpful when you're studying the Bible to do that. It's an easy thing for you to do. And when you do that here in Zechariah 9, one of the things that Zechariah actually does for us is help us have the, the right expectation of the king who is coming. So for example, we're told that the king is coming. He's going to be seated on a, on a donkey. But then in verse 10, what does it say about this king? It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. No war, he's saying. Why? He says, he will proclaim peace to the nations. So what's the king going to do? He's going to bring peace. He's going to seek peace. He's going to speak peace. And to whom is this peace going to be offered to? He tells us here, to the nations, actually. And where will his rule be? Listen, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, how good is the Old Testament and its prophecy? Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating how, how amazing the scriptures are. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus comes, we are told exactly who the king is going to be and exactly what he's going to do. A blood covenant is associated with this king. Peace is associated with this king. A global rule and reign for the nations is associated with this king. And so what's our expectation based on this prediction? We should know he's coming humbly. It says he's coming on a donkey. We should look for someone coming on a donkey. We should look for one who's coming in gentleness not with a sword. We should look for one who's speaking peace and offering this peace to the nations. And ultimately, this king, we're told, will come and reign and rule over all things forever, which Jesus has told them he has come to do. And you know, I think the irony of all of this, especially from a Jewish context, if you're an Israelite, the irony is that God's people wanted peace more than that, not only are they longing for shalom, longing for peace, but please understand that actually the name Jerusalem literally means peace. <laughs> Jerusalem is peace. And so Jesus is on the donkey, which symbolizes peace. And where is he going? He's going to peace, Jerusalem, to speak peace. And yet they still miss it. This is what they hope for. They always long for, but they misunderstand Jesus. Even his closest disciples don't get it. Which is why in verse 16, it says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, means resurrected, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, this is certainly not the first time we read that sort of thing in John's gospel, right? It's common that we read that the disciples didn't understand things, that they didn't understand things until after the death of Jesus and after the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, that's a reminder to us, I think. It's a very helpful reminder to us that apart from the cross and apart from the resurrection, not a whole lot of the Bible actually makes sense. That's not a controversial statement. Without the cross and without the resurrection, you can't understand the vast majority of scripture. Right? We need those two events. Our faith hinges on those two events to understand the whole of the gospel and the whole of God's story in his plan, right? 
So there are those who are focused on the politics amongst the crowd. There are those who just plainly don't understand. And then we see the Pharisees and we've seen their reaction before. It's one of frustration. It's one of anger. Verse 17, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So of course, people are still going around. It hasn't been long, maybe a few days, maybe a couple weeks at the most. People are going around and they're talking about Lazarus. You'd be talking about him too if you saw a guy who was raised from the dead. That'd be a big topic of your lunch conversation. They're doing that. And at that, we see crowds of people coming out to see Jesus. Probably to hear from him. Right? You'd want to see the guy who raised people from the dead too, right? You can imagine you're the one left out. All your friends were there. They decided to go right, to, the, to the burial that day. You were there the day before, right? You thought you were doing the right thing. I'm going to be there early. And then you leave and then you miss Lazarus raising from the dead. And your friends are all eating lunch. Like, can you believe it? The grave clothes, he comes out and walking. He's stumbling around, right? And you're like, you got to be kidding me. Like I was there before you guys and you procrastinated and now you got to see the miracle, right? you go out and I'd want to go see that Jesus. We would all be in that same boat. So they're all going out to see, to see Jesus, to look at him, to listen to his teaching, to hear his testimony, to, to, to hopefully even see Lazarus for himself like in the flesh. And with this obvious rise of popularity, we see the Pharisees respond to this popularity with frustration. They say, basically, this has gained us nothing. They mean personal gain. And to that, or along with that, they say, everyone is going after him. In other words, they're no longer coming to us. Everyone is going to him. Literally, they say, the world is following after him now. And they were right about that. People from all over the world we're now seeking Jesus. And that's affirmed in the next verse. Look at it. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. And Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. It's here that we see the fourth reaction to Jesus, the arrival of our king. We see this reaction from the Greeks. And the reaction is, it's one of interest. It's one of interest. Now, let me just clarify. Let me just clarify something. Greek here, or Greeks here, does not mean people from Greece. Okay? It's not, that's not what this is saying. All that means is a non-Jewish person. Okay, a Gentile, probably like 99% of this room. Okay, and we know there were many Greeks, Gentiles, who lived in and around Jerusalem. But this is a Jewish festival, specifically Jewish. So why are they there? Why have they come for Passover? Right? Certainly they are out of place. They're not really welcome. They're looked down upon. So why are they there? Well, Something about Jesus has clearly drawn them in. Maybe they have too heard rumors about the Lazarus story. Or I like to think, I like to think, this is just me. I like to think that they're there because, because, of, because of Jesus cleansing the temple in the, in the court of Gentiles, which would have been fascinating to them. Like this, this man who came and stuck up for them, right? Who... Who, look, who looked out for them, that gave them intrinsic value and intrinsic worth, and now they've gone and told their family and friends. And so, wait, that guy Jesus who, 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 who advocated for us and who said who's here for us, we want to go and see him now too. I like to think that's why they're there. Maybe it's a combination of both. Excuse me, we don't know. 
But these non-Jews have come into Jerusalem and they've come to seek Jesus. And so what do they do? It's actually funny how John writes this. Um, you got to see it in the, in the language, but it's, it's really funny when you understand it. They go to Philip of all the disciples. And, and why do they go to Philip? Well, because Philip has a Greek name. Okay, so maybe they think, oh, they, they can relate to him in some way. But here's, the, here's what's funny. Philip, Philip isn't Greek. Not at all. He just has a Greek name. So you can imagine it's the person, you know, maybe they have a Korean name and you go to them and you're like, I've never lived in Korea, right? Or something. Maybe you, you, you lived in America your whole life. Right? You don't even speak Korean. So like, oh, you can help us. You can tell us about Jesus. He's like, uh, you know, Anieyo, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Anieyo. Miguksa right? That's what you do, right? Yeah. Wenchok, right? You just, you, you get by, right? <laughs> you, just, you just get by. That's Philip here, right? They come to him. Maybe they're speaking, speaking Greek to him. And he doesn't know what to do, right? Which is why he goes, goes and tells Andrew, hey, a bunch of the Gentiles, they're asking about Jesus. And then they have a little conversation. Man, I wish I was there for that. And then, and then Andrew and Philip are like, all right, well, yeah, we better go tell Jesus. He knows all things anyway, right? So we better go tell him. So they go to him. And and beyond the, the, the humor and irony of that, I just love what they, what they say to Philip, though. It's simple, it's powerful. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see him. That's the life of a follower of Christ, isn't it? This is our purpose. It's, it's our life's call, just to, just to seek after him, to, to see him, and, and then to point other people to him. Right? We, we wish to see Jesus. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Of all those he encounters, some have political dreams and aspirations. Some are confused. Some are, 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 are frustrated and angry. Others are interested and in, in seeking. There are a lot of different reactions to their king. And again, what we're learning is he wasn't the king everyone expected. He wasn't the king everyone wanted, but he is the king, was the king that everyone needed, and now the king makes his announcement. When the Greeks ask to see Jesus, we are told that Philip and Andrew go. They tell Jesus. They seemingly bring them to Jesus, by the way, which is another thing that we should model, bringing others to Jesus. And then John, as he often does when he writes this gospel, doesn't finish his thought, which frustrates me. He doesn't. Maybe you have some friends or a spouse that does that. They just talk and, and then they just change subjects quickly. You're like, uh, I'm over here still and you've moved on. That's what John does. Because then John just gets right to Jesus's words. Jesus responds. And is he responding to the Gentiles? Are they with him amongst the large crowd? I think so, but we aren't entirely sure. But whatever the case, whatever the case, news that the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, were now seeking Jesus triggers a powerful response from him. Verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh, Philip, Andrew, not just the Jews, the Gentiles now, they've come seeking you. The hour has come. My glorification time is here. The time has come for the Son of Man. It's Daniel. Read the book of Daniel there. Daniel's great figure of the king prophesied. Son of Man will come riding on clouds to be glorified. And then Jesus goes on to speak about the cross. Again, he's not who they expected. In other words, he's gonna tell them here that his time has come, and he means by that, that the hour of his death is here. And isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing here that Jesus refers to his death as glory? That's Jesus' perspective. 
When you see the word glory throughout the text, it literally means death. My death is a glory, he says. Why? Because his death was the Father's will. And doing the Father's will will bring him glory. By the way, it's the exact same story. It's the exact same thing, situation for you and I, right? Same thing. The same way. You want to bring glory with your life today? Do the Father's will. Do the Father's will with your life. It's that simple. And what's his will? Glorify him, make disciples. That's it. You don't have a whole lot else to figure out. We complicate life so much as followers of Jesus. What should I do? Where should I go? What should I live? Should I buy this, buy that? I don't know. Glorify God and make disciples. Can you glorify God in Spain? Wonderful, move. Can you do it here in Korea? Yep, good. No, again, guess what? You have freedom of choice. God gave you a brain, so choose. Right, what should I do with my, with my life? I don't know. Can you glorify him in this profession? Yeah, okay, great. Well, I can glorify him in, in this profession too. Great, you get to choose. Wonderful. But we, so, so often, right, we do this. We sit in the closet and we wait. I'm waiting for God to hear me, tell me what to do. How about you move first and let him show you if you're on the right path? That's way off my notes. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Way off my notes. <laughs> Jesus' perspective, though, again, he sees death as a glory. By doing the, the Father's will with our lives, right, we glorify God. And so Jesus here, he glorifies the Father. How? He's saying, by finishing the mission, by coming to do what he's been asked to do. That's what he's saying. And in that, or with that, he then expounds on the cross. It's beautiful. He says, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He gives an analogy of the cross first. The analogy here is quite clear to this farming audience, by the way, agricultural society. Jesus has that group of people in front of him. He always spoke well to his audience. He always knew his audience well. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot produce a harvest. They know that. They have personal experience with that. And why does Jesus tell them this now? What's his point? He's saying, I must die in order for there to be fruit. And there is a certainty there, by the way. A certainty there. If I die, he says, fruit is coming. So Jesus is not saying, I'm going to the cross now, guys, and I, I'm crossing my fingers. I sure hope that people believe in me. No way. He's saying, I will die and fruit is coming. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus here today in this place, if you're a Christian, you're the evidence of what Jesus said. You are part of that fruit. What he said 2,000 years ago actually happened. Jesus died, and you're a piece of the fruit that he promised. The harvest has come. We're here from all around the world because the harvest has come because he died. It's such good news that we have in the gospel, amen? Right? Jesus came and did what he needed to do. Right? He, was a man who was, he was a man who was born to die. And his death produced fruit. It produced life. Praise be to God. Well, then Jesus gives us some application to this. And in what Jesus is about to say, uh, let me just say this. Uh, what we're ultimately learning here is going to be just twofold. There's kind of a lot that could go into this. I could have preached a standalone sermon on this one text. I just don't have the time, maybe another time. Okay? But ultimately, the principle here is two, twofold, and I'll say it this way. Number one, that the Christian life is hard. <laughs> but alongside of that, number two, the Christian life is glorious. The path of following Jesus is hard, but it's glorious. Jesus says, 
Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. And my father will honor the one who serves me. The Christian life is hard. It's really hard. Whoever loves his life does what? Loses it. Doesn't that sound great? (laughs) Isn't that attractive? Lose my life. More than that, hate my life. Jesus is going to the cross. He's telling them that here. I'm on my way to die. I'm going to the cross and I want you to follow me there. Why? Why would we do that? Why would anyone do that? Well, notice, notice what he says. Notice why. He says, if you lose your life for me, you will actually keep your life for eternal life. So that's one. If we lose it, we'll keep it. But also, he says, whoever serves me and follows me to the cross, I'll be there with you. That's two. You follow Jesus, you get to be with Jesus forever. That's the message. And then three, if anyone serves me, he says, the Father father will honor him. You'll gain your life, eternal life. You'll be with Jesus, be with him forever, and you'll be honored by the creator, the father. Is that worth it? That's the question we have in front of us this morning. The Christian life, yes, it is hard. It is about dying to self every single day, dying to self. It is about following Jesus. It's about going the way of the cross. It's about moving away from personal comfort towards a path of death. But it also means eternal life. It means the presence of Jesus. It means we get Jesus. And it also means that we receive honor from the Father. And I'll take that every single day of the week. This is how we walk the path of discipleship, church family. This is the devoted life. It's the only way. It's the only way. You know, the great church leader, he was also such a great caretaker of orphans. His name is George Mueller. If you've never heard of him, you need to know him. You need to read works by him, George Mueller. He was once asked, just this incredible life of faith and perseverance, went through so much hardship in his life but remain so steadfast in love with Jesus. And so one day, people just had to know, what's up with you? More than that, they asked him, Christians, what is the secret to your life? What's the secret to your life, Mr. Mueller? That's what they asked. And he said this, quote, there was a day when George Mueller died. There was a day when George Mueller died. That was the secret to his incredible life of faith. It was the secret to to loving God with all that he had. His whole heart, mind, affections, devotion, and beyond that, of loving his neighbor and loving people as he loved himself. He gave his whole life for the poor, for the down, those who are down and out, everything. Why? How could he do that? He died to himself. He understood what we all need to understand, that this is the secret to finding life, to finding joy, to living a life that actually has purpose and meaning. We need to follow Jesus to the cross. And do you understand? Do you understand how out of step what Jesus is saying here is with the current messages that you and I are learning day after day after day. Everything about you and around you 
is telling you that nothing should get in your way of your own self-exaltation. Nothing should get in your way of your own self-expression. Nothing should stand in front of your, your own self-fulfillment. Your job, your friends, your money, it's all for you, about you, it's for your benefit. Even your marriage, it's about you. You're the center of everything. And unfortunately, what has happened is that ideology has actually crept its way among us, actually in the church, and it happens all the time, where church is meant to be some provider for you of goods and services for you to consume. That is crap. That is garbage. Right? It's self, 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 through and through. And what Jesus is saying here is, is so radically out of step with that, that no, life is not about expressing yourself. It's about dying to yourself. It's about killing yourself. Not suicide, killing the inner man, the flesh. It's about being the seed that goes in the ground to die. Why? Because that's when you actually find life. That's when your life will actually bear fruit and actually mean something. When your life will actually have purpose. Amen? In verse 27, Jesus pivots a bit. He gets quite vulnerable. He lays the hammer almost. He gets strong. And then he moves. It's so interesting how he does this. He moved from that place to a deep place of vulnerability. He shares some pain with us, some agony. It's almost an echo, by the way, of what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. John's gospel, by the way, doesn't record Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, with, the, with the tears of, of blood dripping down his face. And so this is his echo of that. There's some pain here from Jesus as he says, my soul now is troubled. He said what he needs to do. I need to go and die. I have to die. I've come to die so that there may be fruit. And then he ponders that and says, my soul now is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. And all I want to say here is this, to this is this, that we should never think of the cross as some mechanical, emotionless event. We can so easily do that, those of us who have been churched for years, right? Wear the cross around our, our, our neck, and nothing wrong with that, by the way. We wear it on our neck, we have it in a church building, and we just, we take it, take it for granted. We think of it as just like this symbol, right? Mechanical, emotionless. No, 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 there is agony there is horror here. And Jesus now is contemplating that and he's being open and vulnerable with that. Just four to five days from these words, Jesus will experience the cross. And it's almost too much for him to take. Too much for him to bear. He's asking actually to be saved from this. For, for the father to take this cup from him, we're told in other gospels. And so he prays. And what's the prayer? What's the prayer here? Well, it's the prayer that controlled his entire life. And I would argue that this prayer should control every believer's life. Your life should be controlled by these words, controlled by this prayer. It's spoken out in verse 28. Listen, so simple, so powerful. Father, glorify your name. That's his prayer. Here's how I'm feeling, God. This is what I'm going through. This is what's before me. Here's my prayer. Father, glorify your name. I don't want to go through with this, Father, but glorify your name. I know this is why you sent me here. Glorify your name. Every day, every day, this should be our prayer. Charles Spurgeon called this prayer right here. Father, glorify your name. He called this the golden prayer. It's short. It's memorable. It's so contrary to our self-centered hearts. Father, glorify your name. Jesus prays this on the road to the cross. And as he utters those words, speaks out that prayer, 
Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. It's important to pause here and just reflect on what's happening. Don't take this for granted. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover. And what just happened? A voice speaks from heaven, right? Kind of a big deal, right? God the Father speaks now. And what he is doing here is sharing the glory with Jesus, actually. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity, the, the, the relationship with the Godhead. You see, there's no jealousy within the Godhead. The, the Son wants to glorify the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. There's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. The Father was glorified in the incarnation, at Jesus' coming, at his birth, and his name will be glorified again in the resurrection of Jesus. There's beautiful harmony here. And then listen to the kindness of God in verse 30. The kindness of God. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. He says, you heard the Father's voice for your sake. What's John's message to us? So that we might believe. This is for the benefit of the people. Everything was for the benefit of the people, to the glory of God. Jesus' words, his work, now this voice from heaven, it's all encouraging us to believe and to follow him. This voice is affirmation that Jesus truly is the son of God. And so to that, Jesus continues. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, lifted up, being crucified. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So what we're actually seeing here from Jesus is what the cross will accomplish. And, and one of the first things that stands out to me here as we come to kind of close things up is that the cross will actually divide the entire human race. In other words, the cross is a judgment, we're told here. Jesus, Jesus is essentially saying that what the cross is going to do is unmask, unveil, if you will, who belongs to this world and who belongs to him. And isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Because the people thought that they were passing judgment on Jesus when he died on the cross. And of course, they were on one level. But in reality, in the big picture, the cross was passing judgment on them. <laughs> it was showing who they belonged to. They thought they were passing judgment on Jesus, but what they were doing to pass judgment was actually passing judgment on themselves. And we've been seeing this all throughout John, haven't we? The whole of human history can be divided based on one's response to the gospel, on one's response to Jesus and the cross. So that's the first thing we see here in regards to the cross as accomplishment. Second, we see that by the cross, the ruler of this world will be cast out. The prince of this world will be driven out, Jesus says. Remarkable statement. In Jesus dying, he will appear to look defeated. He will be bruised and beaten, bloodied. He will seem to be defeated. It will look as though the enemy has won, but no. Colossians 2 tells us that Jesus won by dying, that he triumphed over the evil one. Our lives were in the grips of Satan. But yet, our Lord Jesus, in all the agony, went and triumphed and freed us. Freed us from all the accusations that Satan can and will try to bring against you and still tries to bring against you. Accusations like, you have no worth. Accusations like, are you really forgiven? Um, or, are you really saved? Well, the cross says that you are. <laughs> and the cross says that you do. Jesus has stripped Satan of his power so that now you can securely and freely embrace Christ with deep peace in your heart, knowing that Jesus has won. And then the third thing that we see here is that through the cross, that Jesus will draw all people to himself. This, by the way, is not a statement of universalism. It's not that everyone will be saved. Okay, don't mistake that. It's a statement of inclusion here, actually. It's a statement of welcome this is an invitation. It's saying that those who look to Jesus, that those who look to the cross, those who accept Jesus as Lord and this King, they will be saved. To that, the crowd speaks. And this is where we close. 
We have heard from the law that, that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? This is one of those moments where Jesus doesn't answer directly and instead speaks to what is most important. He understands the urgency of the moment. The time is now. The time has come. And so he speaks to the issue of believing now. He says, if you keep, if you keep reading, he says, I'm not going to be with you guys much longer. And you're going to be left with a choice. Will you walk in darkness or will you choose to walk in light? You've heard from Jesus. You've seen what he has done. You've now even heard the Father's voice testify about Jesus. So what are you going to do now with this Jesus? How are you going to respond to this king? And if you're a Christian here today, let me just say this to you as well. You're not exempt from this, this believing. Because John's understanding of belief is ongoing. It's ongoing belief. That is, we must keep believing. We must keep trusting. We must keep abiding in him. We must keep embracing him. We must keep, keep clinging to the feet of Jesus. We must keep being satisfied in Christ because there's no one like him and because he's worthy. On that day, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a little donkey, humble, bringing peace. But someday soon, very soon, he will come as the conquering king, riding on a horse, and he will reign forever. I don't know about you, but I am so glad we have a different king. He's not the king that everyone expected. He's not the king that everyone wanted, but he was the king everyone needed. He's the king that you and I need. May we embrace him, Freedom Village Church. Amen? Let me, embrace, let me pray for you.